This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Sana Krasikov read her story, The Muddle, from the August 15, 2022 issue of the magazine. Krasikov is the author of the story collection, One More Year, for which she won the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award, and the novel, The Patriots, which was published in 2017. Now here's Sana Krasikov. The Muddle. Shura was trying to reach Alyona and Oleg. First over Skype and WhatsApp, then Facebook, on which Alyona kept an account she barely used. It should not have been so hard to get hold of them. Alyona had not posted recently, but she checked her messages. Shura could see that. Maybe she thought Shura was being dramatic. Hadn't she always thought so? With her digital silence, Alona was making a big show of her own calm, doubling down on her refusal to treat anything as a catastrophe. Well, goody for her, Shura thought, and shut her laptop. If Alona wasn't panicked, why should she be? It was day three, and there were still no Russian boots in central Kiev. There was the battle for the Hamostil airport, and a rocket had crashed into a building in a balloon, but that was not near where Alyona and Oleg lived, in the Shevchenkovsky district. From the security of her own house in Croton on Hudson, Shura tried not to think about the last conversation she'd had with Alyona. It had been a rather unpleasant chat, but now there was a war on and it seemed unnecessary to be holding a grudge, one of the very few they'd had in their 60-odd year friendship. On day five, a reply came over Skype. We're alive. Two words in a pale blue bubble. It should have taken the tension out of her lungs, but it only agitated Shura more. She'd expected a bit more emotiveness. Did they have groceries? Were they spending nights in their building's basement or in the metro? We're alive. The bare minimum. She would write back, Shura decided, but not yet. She dialed Pavel's number in Winnipeg instead. All right, Pavel, she said briskly. What is going on with your parents? They're waiting it out in the apartment. She gathered from his voice that he'd understood her meaning. Not, are they okay, but what is wrong with those two? Why aren't they on their way to Winnipeg? Shura could hear Pavel exhale. He'd likely been asked this a dozen times by now. Have they become patriots all of a sudden? She said, unable to resist. But he wasn't hurt, having some of his own bitterness to shed. Last time she was here, Mama said she didn't find Winnipeg cozy. Meaning what? It's too Canadian? Too Ukrainian. Oh, for heaven's sake. Oleg, to be sure, was Russian, the son of a colonel. But Alona was Ukrainian, on both sides, as she'd proudly told Shura when they were girls. Her father's family was from the Vinitsa area, her mother's from Donbass. Pavel said, Mama, I understand better than I do him. She's always been under his thumb. But I think he'd rather spend his old age living on Kantushonka than accept help from me. Pavel had been more of a joker when he'd arrived in Winnipeg 20 years ago. The long shift into a Canadian had turned him, Shura thought, more earnest and a touch more righteous. Oh, Pavel, 
She sensed that he would tell her more if she egged him on a little. But she hesitated, not wanting to give the impression that she was disparaging his mother. So what's their situation with groceries? No worries about that. Last time we spoke, she was making veal the French way. At school number six, French had been Alona's favorite subject, and by extension, Shura's. Chattering and broken French was how they got to pretend they were more than provincial Soviet schoolgirls in a quasi-industrial railroad city. In their sixth grade production of Cinderella, Alona, with her shining blonde head and biscuit skin, was cast as Faye Moraine, the fairy godmother. Shura, slight, pale, with dark braids and eyes that could narrow suspiciously, had played an evil stepsister. Alona was one of only five Ukrainian kids in their class of 29. Zhidovskaya Shkola, the Jew school, was how the Ukrainians and the Jews both referred to school number six, a neighborhood Russian school known to be one of the best in the city. Not a snide designation, just fact. There was a Ukrainian school in the same neighborhood, so parents had a choice. Alona's parents, engineers at the mechanical plant, had chosen the Jew school. All Shura remembered now of her French was that song they'd sung at the top of their voices walking home. La Russe voulait la guerre. Do the Russians want war? A refrain that, 50 years later, could land you in prison. Alona had kept up her French, reading classics in the original. When Shura had spoken to her by Skype last year, while Alona and Oleg were living in Winnipeg. No, not living, only visiting, as it turned out. Alona had been working through a copy of Colette's Le Blé and Herb. Into the corporate-issued Mac that Shura had inherited in her retirement, she'd nearly shouted, What are you doing with that? You're wasting your time. It's Winnipeg, not Quebec. Start practicing your English. Foolishly, she'd imagined herself and Alona forming a study group the way they'd done as girls, a tight unit to beat out the boys in their class. She advised Alona on the best language software, and told her that she would dig up her old ESL coursework from night classes. She'd held on to it sentimentally, even after her daughters had left home and she'd decluttered the place. I'll mail you everything, she promised over-eagerly, too pleased to have her friend on the same continent to hear her demurals. I have my grandson here if I need to practice conversation, Alona had said, and anyhow, I prefer to work on my French. Shura had never asked what it had taken Pavel to get his parents' Canadian residency cards. Years of paperwork, she imagined, regular checks mailed to lawyers. And yet, after only three months in Winnipeg, they'd packed up and flown home. Not for us, was all Alona had told her. Shura could understand Alona protecting her pride. She certainly had enough of it. But practicing her French? It made no sense. She would have thought her friend more pragmatic than that. They'd sat at neighboring desks since the first grade. Karalenka and Kravitz, their friendship alphabetically predestined. But it wasn't until the second grade that they'd become close. Their teacher that year was young and rigid, without the heavyset authority of their first grade teacher, who'd hand-selected children for her class, ensuring that the brightest, in her clairvoyant estimation, would remain with one another until their college entrance exams. By contrast, the young teacher exercised her rule through public embarrassment. It was March, and they were starting their painting unit, 
Shura's father had bought her a new watercolor set, the waffles of pigment arrayed in a tin like tiny gems. The assignment was to paint the spring outside. The teacher brought in an easel with her own painting, a primitively pastoral scene with a leafy tree supporting a yellow-breasted bird, a blue pond accommodating one duck, two clouds, major and minor, floated toward a conical sun wedged in a corner. Shura had not understood that she was supposed to copy directly from the teacher's example. She'd made the mistake of looking out the window, where spring had arrived in a wash of mud-streaked sidewalks and oily puddles. In truth, she'd hewed closely to her teacher's design, altering only the palette, graying the blues, daubing brown along the picture's grassy bottom edge. She'd covered the sun with a gray cloud. Moving down the row of desks, their teacher had stopped and, with pincered fingers, lifted Shura's wet paper as an example of what the others should not do. Muddy their colors, soak the parchment with water, fail to pay attention to the assignment. Shura had sat wordlessly, her cheeks growing hot. It was true she'd used too much water, but the charge of not paying attention to the assignment seemed utterly unfair. But I did paint the spring, she protested, turning to the window as proof. The young teacher, still looking at her picture, had declared, This is not spring. This is a muddle. That afternoon, Alona and Shura walked home together, and Shura's outrage unleashed itself in her gait. She didn't avoid the mud on the sidewalks, despite owning only one pair of school shoes, which her mother would have to scrub that night. She made herself leap in puddles, as if the damage to her wool stockings and coat would stand as proof of the treachery that the spring was capable of. Each time Shura was about to jump, Alona would take a step back, protecting her own neat ensemble. Yet she did not tell Shura to stop. You saw, you saw, Shura kept insisting, because it seemed to her only Alona did not think her crazy, even if Alona had decided to ignore the world outside the window. Finally, seeing that Shura's tantrum would not end without some concession on her part, Alona said, She wanted us to paint the spring as it should be. Her voice was filled with the quiet, tidy exhaustion of having to deliver an explanation too obvious to be spoken aloud. Only it hadn't been obvious to Shura. For the next eight years of her schooling, she'd learned to adopt a kind of vigilance toward herself, to ferret out what a teacher really wanted from her, to stop herself before her hunger to excel tipped over into intellectual extravagance. She found it helpful to follow Alona's lead in this regard. Later, when Shura began to study computer science in Leningrad, the word requirements would come to mind whenever she thought of her friend studying the same subject in Kiev. She thought of Alona's ability to ascertain the implicit expectations of a task while ignoring anything unnecessary. The conversation that had left a bad taste in Shura's mouth a week before the invasion began had been about bread. Shura was watching the massing of troops on the border with a growing dread and had called Alona. Aren't you worried? About? War? Is that what you all are placing your bets on? You all, Shura said. It's me you're talking to. Your media, then putting chips on different squares on the calendar. These didn't sound like Alona's words. Perhaps they were Oleg's. So you're not placing a bet then? That was when Alona said it, 
Why? In Kharkov, their hands are already tired from baking karavai. Shura wasn't sure she'd heard correctly. Did Alona understand what she just said? Karavai? Did she mean the bread and salt with which some Ukrainians had greeted the Germans back in 41? You mean celebrating the takeover? What about you? Are you baking karavai too? If Alona was taken aback by the sharpness of Shura's voice, she didn't show it. You know I never bake, she said. But they'd both felt a shift then, as if each had suddenly discovered something distasteful about the other and wanted to get past it as quickly as possible. After that conversation, Shura had slept badly. Plenty of her friends in North America had relatives or old classmates still in Ukraine, but none of them, as far as she knew, had mentioned anyone speaking the way Elona had. Shura was, in fact, placing bets on a war, and the morning that it finally happened, she felt so weakened that her vision blurred from an abrupt drop in blood pressure. She had experienced these sudden drops occasionally since the conclusion of her chemo three years before. An uncommon but not life-threatening side effect. For the first time in two years, Shura wondered if things would be easier now if she hadn't retired, if her mind had blocks of code to occupy itself with, instead of the movements of troops and tanks across three separate fronts. After her treatment, she hadn't gone back to work, and she'd been surprised how quickly many of her friendships thinned out without common deadlines and office gossip. Still, life was too short to code yourself into the grave. Throughout the years, she and Elona had been in touch sporadically, but during her recovery, they'd started talking again almost every week. Until now. On days six and seven, Shura tried Skyping Elona, but couldn't reach her. On day eight, she called Pavel again. He said that his parents had packed up and headed to their dacha. He couldn't vouch for the reliability of their internet when they arrived. Shura did not want to second-guess herself. Most likely, Elona was busy escaping the city. Perhaps her devices had died. And still, Shura felt that Elona's failure to give her updates was payback for their argument about Karavai, when Elona had accused her of not having a clue about what was really happening in the East. They act like they are the cops, roaming the streets after dark and stopping anyone they want, asking for papers, Alona had said of the Ukrainian militias. They say they're hunting separatists. You get a mass riot in America every time one of your police tries half the stuff these fascists pull. Really? Shura said. Are they shooting people? Well, they're not exactly walking around unarmed. And they're anti-Semites. She suspected that Elona had thrown in the anti-Semite charge to press her buttons. Are they pogroming? She inquired. Are you out of your mind? So it's just words. You think that isn't enough? The police let these nationalists run rampant. They're afraid to stop them. In Kiev? Not here, but... Well, even here, they come out on Independence Square in their sunglasses and stupid bandanas, their wrong-side-up swastikas painted on their cars. Democracy is messy, Shura said, though she wasn't sure why she was defending Ukraine to a Ukrainian. Democracy? Are you kidding? They've colonized the state, our nouvelle droite. Alona sometimes used French when she wanted to make a point, but colonize the state hardly sounded like her. How could the fascists have colonized the state, Shura said, when your president is a Jew? 
and the defense minister, too. You think that proves anything? Your Trump was practically a Jew himself with his Kushners running the shop. Did that stop him from saluting your neo-Nazis when he got up on a balcony? Shura had complicated opinions on this matter, but kept them to herself. Zelensky's afraid they'll topple the government if he doesn't kiss their asses. He should hear them talk. An army of lions being led by sheep. Big deal, Jewish president. We change presidents every five years. Better than every 25, Shura said. On the evening before day 11, NATO was still rejecting a no-fly zone, and the nuclear plant in Zaporozhye had been seized. But that morning, Shura felt as though her body had somehow acclimated to the new state of alarm. She was squinting at the expiration date on a vitamin D bottle when Skype's cartoonish jingle rang on her laptop. Alona, where are you? She shouted as the screen revealed behind Alona's halo of pulled back blonde hair, a narrow kitchen with old metal dishes stacked on hanging shelves. Are you at the dacha? We arrived two nights ago. Pavel said you called him? Alona hadn't wanted to Skype from Kiev, she said. Too noisy, hard to talk over the sirens. Right. A mess. She made a few limp hand motions like waving a lazy goodbye. Oleg and I are tired of this whole muddle. Her face looked puffy, dark satchels of exhaustion under her eyes. It was always unsettling for Shura to see a woman like Alona not looking her best. At school, the boys had all been in love with her, but Shura hadn't really understood the measure of Alona's beauty until she'd come to America and watched Tootsie at a party thrown by one of the seasoned immigrants who'd screened it for the new arrivals as a kind of cultural tutorial. Watching Dustin Hoffman's love interest, played by Jessica Lange, had suddenly made her feel both nostalgic and comforted in this new land. It was as though Alona had appeared on screen, with the same soft brown eyes and feathery waves, the same slow smile. Now Lang was skinny and botoxed, her fine features sharpened into aggressive angles, while Alona's, each time Shura saw her, seemed to be blurring and becoming more lost in the fleshiness of her face, her softening jawline. Oleg's meaty head entered the frame as he crouched down to say, Greetings, Shurichka. How are you two? The couple glanced at each other, an inscrutable message passing between them. No worse for wear, Oleg answered, which meant what, exactly? Where are you again? He gave the name of the town in the Zhutomir area. It's really quieter around Zhutomir? Shura said, powerless to keep the distress out of her voice, as she quickly typed the city on Google Maps, employing the Ukrainian Zhutomir, the more guttural sound of which she still felt too pretentious to say. Hadn't they been shelling Zhutomir all night? Tell her to take a breath, Oleg said. We're nowhere near the city. Alona confirmed, not even close. Shura liked Oleg well enough, but he had a way of making you feel slightly foolish for asking reasonable questions, either giving you an excessively long and detailed answer and getting impatient if you wanted to hurry it along, or, or else making a joke of your inquiry so that you felt it was superfluous. Their dacha was closer to Kiev than to the Belarus border, he now explained, giving the full coordinates. Still, it seemed odd to Shura that they should have traveled in that direction, with troops still filtering down from the north. How long do you plan to stay? she asked. Oh, the usual, probably through September. Shura tried not to let the surprise show on her face. 
Bavel had been right about them making no plans to leave. Do you have food with you? Oleg was silently laughing at her again. We brought plenty from Kiev, even red wine. Packed the whole car. I suppose you'll grow the rest then. Well, sure, Alona said. We'll need to get the ground ready for planting soon. In March? Why not? Oleg cut in. The carrots and dill we can plant already. We can start the seeds for the cabbage and squash in the greenhouses. Alona gave him a look. You know I like to use those for the strawberries. For a few moments, the screen seemed to freeze. When the connection returned to normal, Alona was talking about moving the tomato pots indoors. Shura said, I guess you've got it all sorted out. She wasn't sure what game they were playing, chatting as if it were another spring at the dacha, as if Alona and Oleg had retired to the countryside for a vacation instead of fleeing a city under attack. Then again, what should Alona be doing? All day long, Shura watched the news on YouTube, zooming in on crowds flooding into train stations, people shouting, please, please, and the conductor shouting back, no space. Occasionally, someone begged for a mother with a child to be let on, as in the war tales she'd heard growing up, except this time everything was in bright color. She could hardly blame her friend for not wanting to be stuck among all those jostling bodies. And yet, she could not help thinking that these people had nowhere to go. While Alona did, to her son, it baffled her. All that planting sounds like a lot of work, she said. Alona gave her Jessica Lang smile. It always is. The next day, she called Pavel again. There are flights from Warsaw to Toronto. If they can just get themselves to Lviv first, all the trains are running. I've checked the schedules. Aunt Shura, they know. They're almost 70 years old, and that estate is at least an acre. If the Russians move another few inches south, your parents are going to be feeding three types of squash to those bandits. My father is impenetrable. If it was just her, I could convince her to come back, get some proper care. But as long as she's around him... A feeling like embarrassment fluttered through her at his words. She thought of Alona with her sense of decorum, hearing them talk like this. What happened, Pavel? Why did they leave Winnipeg so soon? She hadn't dared to ask this question before. And he was quiet for so long that she had to say his name again. I don't know where to start, he said. He's contemptuous of the way I live. He said I do nothing but work. I barely see my child. It's true. I had a tight delivery schedule when they were here. The company had just gone public. I was managing a new team. I didn't argue with him. He started going on about how when he and Mama were working at the Informatics Institute, they never kept anyone past six. How after work there was a life, culture, theater circle, a chess club. People did things together. I said, Papa, I'm sorry my e-commerce firm doesn't have a chess club. I'm sorry it doesn't have an acapella group. What did he say? He thought I was mocking him. He said, your problem is you believe the whole world wants to live like you. I was foolish enough to think I could prove him wrong. We had a party, a few friends from work, but mostly my wife's from the Ukrainian church, people who helped us out when we first came. We started talking about Crimea, Donbass. He got up from the table and left the room. I thought, good riddance. But then he came back. He sat down, lifted his glass, and started singing one of those old Russian veteran songs. We need only victory. Was he drunk? Not at all. He was trying to get Mama to sing along with him. He was waving his hand up and down like a choir master to get her to harmonize. And did she? Oh, yes. She may have been a little embarrassed at first, but then she did it. 
She got into it or pretended to. I can't tell with her anymore. She did her best to carry his tune, like she always does. What do you mean always? He talks to me about how I live. There was a river of grievance waiting to come out now. His mother waited on his father and on him, hand and foot. And when she died, he expected the same treatment from Mama. Couldn't care less if she had her own job or life. He's a man of the old generation, Shura said disingenuously. She thought of her husband, Misha, donning volleyball knee pads to clean the kitchen tile. Oleg might laugh at that, but then he wasn't exactly a gentleman of leisure. He did most of the work at the dacha, Alona had told her. Planting, fixing pipes, rigging the internet, building a sauna. That isn't why, Pavel objected. It's because they ran the show, those Russian military guys. They still expect everyone to roll over for them. He feels hurt that my son speaks only English and Ukrainian. She understood now that Pavel had forsaken his Russianness completely. But your father knows Ukrainian almost as well as your mother. I explained that they teach the language at Sunday school. But Papa shook his head. He thinks our church is a bunch of banderovtsi stuck in a time capsule, and that groups like them fund everything that's wrong at home. But I think what really kills him is that the community here has done more for me than he ever did. Or could do, Shura thought. What good would Oleg's family connections have done for Pavel after the great collapse? The economy had still been reeling when Pavel had left on a summer work visa to pick fruit on a farm in England, when he'd befriended some local guys at an internet cafe in Cambridge and offered to write code for them, when he'd been hired by the startup they worked for, then by the corporation that had bought the startup and transplanted him and his young wife to Winnipeg. That his father dared to judge him for having clawed his way to the life he had must have felt exceedingly unfair. But how fair was it to judge his parents, Shura thought, who'd had so little to offer him. My wife and I had a big fight that night. The next day I told him that if he ever did that in my house again, he was free to leave. When I woke up the morning after, they were packing their suitcases. But you said your mother needed medical attention. Her diabetes had worsened, Pavel admitted. Elona had had appointments coming up. Preoccupied with her own health, Shura had not pressed Elona on her diabetes, which Elona always played down, perhaps not wanting to compete over their ailments. Shura regretted this now. They wouldn't even wait until the next doctor's visit, Pavel said, his voice strained with helpless petulance. Mama said she could get it all in Kiev. But she's not in Kiev now. They loathe the city almost as much as they do Winnipeg. But why? The Ubers, the new street names, the ads in Ukrainian and English. Last time I was there, everything annoyed them. It had never looked so modern, Pavel added, like Prague or London. They changed the parking rules, put up those stone planters so cars couldn't nose up on the sidewalks anymore. But his mother had kept stubbing her toe on the planters, almost as if she didn't see them or didn't want to. What frightens them is that there's no trace of anything Soviet anymore. I can't get through to her, Aunt Shura. Maybe you can. Shura felt panic touch her chest. What are you asking, Pavel? She said, suddenly switching to English. She needs care. She listens to you, Manshura. You mean she should come alone? It's the only way. When she hung up the phone, Shura reminded herself that she'd agreed to nothing. She wasn't completely sure what Pavel had asked her to do, persuade Alona to go to Winnipeg for medical care or stay for good. 
because it also sounded to her like what her friend's son was asking her to do was break up his parents' marriage. Shura had never given much thought to Alona and Oleg as a pair, though initially she had found Alona's choice perplexing. In the letters they exchanged throughout college, Alona had not once mentioned Oleg. Then, in her second to last year, she'd written to Shura to announce that she was getting married. Oleg was a year ahead. They'd known each other as acquaintances, but never dated. One day, late in his final semester, he'd asked to walk her to her dormitory. He'd been hoping for a while to speak to her, he said. It was not hard for Shura to imagine a boy taking months to work up the courage to approach Alona, but Oleg was not timid. On their walk, he'd laid it out simply. He wanted to marry her. His father was a colonel in the Soviet army, and his parents had a three-bedroom apartment on the right bank in Kiev, and would help them get their own place soon. He'd given Alona one day to decide. Only a day? Shura had been a little stunned to confirm this when she'd come home from Leningrad that July to attend the wedding. But Alona saw this as a sign of character. He said 24 hours should be enough time. What did you like about him? Shura ventured to ask. She'd meant besides his key of residency papers. He's tall and he has confidence. Of course, a colonel's son had the confidence of his position, but Alona had meant more than that. She meant certainty about what he wanted from life and what he was entitled to. In this case, her. Shura had always thought of Alona's ability to intuit what was required of her as a kind of mental elegance, something of a piece with the physical elegance. But a different memory had come to her then. In high school, they'd made a pact to travel to Leningrad and sit for their university exams together. After they'd already bought the train tickets, Alona announced she wasn't going. Her father wanted her to go to college closer to home. Shura had known even then that Alona would never argue with this. Nonetheless, Shura did not think that Pavel's version of his mother as the long-suffering wife was accurate. Whenever Shura had returned to Ukraine for visits, it was always Alona who'd picked her up at the airport, in any kind of weather, first on the bus and later in her own car. At the train station in Kiev, while Shura waited for her connection back to the town where they'd grown up, the young women would drink tea and talk. Alona had seemed happy, or at least content. I have a lot of freedom, she'd admit, almost guiltily. Shura assumed she was referring to her roomy apartment, close to Oleg's parents, and to the fact that Oleg's mother took Pavel to daycare every morning and picked him up and also did the grocery shopping and errands. Shura's own life, except for these brief trips home, had been a series of increasingly narrow constrictions. She'd married Misha, her college sweetheart, and moved to his native Azerbaijan, not even to Baku, but to an industrial town that made the one she'd grown up in seem like a botanical garden. Later, however, she wondered if Alona's allusion to her freedom had meant something more. Sometimes Alona made references to a colleague, a man with whom she ate lunches that stretched into matinees at a nearby movie house. Just a friend from work, she said. The last time Alona and Shura had met in Kiev, Shura had confessed that she and Misha had received permission to emigrate, and Alona, in turn, had confessed that her friend's wife had died abruptly a few months earlier and that he had asked her to leave Oleg to be with him. They had not acted on their affection and she was asking Shura what to do. Maybe it was the giddiness of knowing that everything in her own life was about to change that made Shura say, do it. Pavel is in high school. If you don't now, when? Yes, you're right. Alona had breathed slowly, bracing herself, it seemed, for escape. 
She'd taken the wide collar of her blouse and raised it to her face, knuckles at her nose as if protecting herself from a freezing gale, though it was June. When they got back in touch two years later, Shura learned that Alona had stayed with Oleg. I thought you loved him, your friend. I do. But? He doesn't have the same, I don't know, force of will. Shura hid her disappointment. She liked the idea of giving up everything for a great love. She believed in a private way that she'd done just that for Misha. But Alona wasn't interested in talking about a decision once it was made, and Shura let it drop. So, what have you planted so far? Shura asked when they spoke next, on day 16. Alona said they'd sown the beets and carrot seeds and spring onions. She wanted to plant spinach, but there was a shortage of fertilizer, so she settled for peas. All that in two weeks? Alona smiled, glad at Shura's exaggerated awe. Well then, what have you and Pavel been talking about? Shura hesitated. We were talking about your health. He said you need an update to your blood sugar monitor. You don't know the whole story. You're right. I know nothing, Shura admitted. But it sounds like he wants to take care of you. Alona said they could take care of themselves well enough. Indeed they could, Shura concurred. Privately, it made Shura manic. Those goddamn vegetable gardens. She'd grown up on a little homestead herself, right in the middle of their town, helping her parents tend a sizable piece of property that had been in the family since before the Bolsheviks, complete with apple trees and chickens. Shura's parents had wanted her to inherit this patch of soil they'd somehow managed to hold on to under the system. Did they really think she, an only child, a professional, would have time to tend to any of it? Not until her mid-forties did she acquire a taste for gardening again, after she and Misha had saved up and moved to their house in Croton. They'd bought across the street from a woman named Trish, who worked as a real estate agent and was obsessed with helping her neighbors keep their yards nice in order to maintain the neighborhood's property values. Trish had been generous with her time, showing Shura which boxwoods were better for light and for shade, how to keep her grass from yellowing. When the war started, Trish had come over with a basket of begonia bulbs and said, Are you all right? Tell me what I can do. Her eyes as plaintive as if she just learned that Shura had cancer again. It was how all her American friends spoke to her now, calling and asking what they could do, flexing their empathy muscles. Shura appreciated it, even if it felt infantilizing. What she liked about this country was the unfailing optimism of its people, the faith they had that something could always be done, that things could be improved. They were certain that with enough aid, enough sanctions, enough deprivation, the regular Russian people would take it upon themselves to overthrow the turd. It didn't occur to them that these same regular people might take a vengeful pleasure, even a national pride, in their own deprivation and humiliation. That this pride could propel them at a moment's notice to head to their little dachas and plan their little gardens to pickle and can their vegetables until Armageddon. Harder to explain was the sentiment of some of her Jewish immigrant friends, who, in spite of shaking their heads compassionately, in spite of sending money to Ukraine's army fund, said among themselves, But still, are we supposed to forget? They meant Bandera and Shuhevich and the Odessa and Preskur of Pogroms and all the rest of it. Oh, how should I detested that, but still. 
In the chemo room, she'd watched Zelensky's victory, a kind of sunlight trickling into her veins along with the drugs. The surprise was not that they'd elected a Jew, but that this seemed of so much less consequence to the Ukrainians themselves than it was to the press. It made her feel that the world really could change, that its surprises were worth sticking around for. Shura had started calling on Tuesdays at 7 p.m., Alona's time, noon hers. That was the hour, Alona had told her, when Oleg was usually out visiting a neighbor for a drink. How's settlement life going? Alona said she'd been up since dawn pruning fruit trees. It seemed to Shura that her enthusiasm had somewhat waned. She said two of the greenhouses had torn siding and finding replacement plastic was turning out to be a nightmare. Well, at least you did a lot of the ground planting. That's true, Alona sighed. Then again, fish, meat, and butter don't exactly grow in neat little rows, do they? It was a sign, Shura thought, that Alona was letting her guard down. The self-sufficiency she had opted for wasn't without its burdens. Still, it was not the same as being captive. Something Shura could not explain to Pavel. That when you reached a certain age... When you'd peered down that canyon, your mate, they happened to still be alive and healthy, was the luck you held on to by your fingernails. The next time Shura called, Alona picked up right away, instead of returning the missed call. Did you see about O? Shura said, naming the town they'd both grown up in. A look of naked worry crossed Alona's face. I heard something. What happened? They bombed the railway station. Even if Shura hadn't been compulsively following the war, she would have heard about the bombing on Facebook, where her old classmates posted news like this within minutes of its announcement. Still, it was strange that she knew more about each round of shelling from her kitchen in Croton than Elona, 40 miles away from it. Schools number five and two also got hit, she said. Anyone inside? I don't think so. What about number six? No, ours is still standing. On the screen, Elona sat, her shoulders fallen. She was looking away from the camera toward what must have been the window, the last of the day's pink sun touching the wooden posts of her chair. They were making progress, Shura thought. Sometimes, after Oleg turned in for the night, Alona called her. They avoided talk of the war, instead recalling moments of their youth. Remember Felix Smaliar in the Green Brigades with us? Shura said. Not to write with numbers? He wrote me from California. Asked if I was still in contact with you. He did? We all thought he was a dummy, but turns out he had dyslexia. Shooter asked if she remembered their second grade teacher, the one she'd argued with about painting spring. Alona shook her head. You don't remember? Telling me I should paint spring as it should be? She didn't know why it should sadden her that Alona had forgotten. You always did insist on your way of things, Alona finally said. It was April now, and through her bay window, Shura could see her tulips peeking up, her daffodils already blooming. She thought of the news analysis she'd heard that morning, that all Ukraine needed to turn the war around was tree cover. The country had a long tradition of guerrilla warfare. Once everything was in bloom and the forests dense, the Russians were in for a bitter slog. She repeated none of this to Alona. Shura couldn't remember when she'd stopped counting the days. Maybe after the Russians had been pushed out of Kiev and thousands of Ukrainians had returned. Each week, Alyona seemed closer to changing her mind. One evening, watching Shura scoop ice cream into a bowl, Alyona said, 
What I wouldn't do for some of that. Shura stopped moving the spoon toward her mouth, feeling the illusion of their proximity suddenly disappear. I'd love to give you mine. We couldn't take any in the car. It would melt, that's all. I bet you could make some. But Alona said she was almost out of cooking butter. What cream she could get her hands on, she'd make into that first. You could go back to Kiev for a bit, Shura suggested. For a long moment, Alona didn't speak, looking somewhere past the camera. There's not enough fuel in the cars for leisure trips, she said, meaning Oleg wouldn't do it. Anyone you could get a ride with? Shura knew she was treading on delicate ground now. To get some supplies, she added. Alona was gazing out the window again. It would be good for her, Shura thought, to be in a city that had just won its freedom, however precarious. You have a cousin in Kiev, don't you? Alona seemed to consider this, but there were parallel creases between her eyes when she looked in the camera again. <sighs> you don't know what it's like to be treated as an enemy because you want peace, she said. Was it the cousin she was talking about or Pavel? Shura couldn't say. But that night, calling Pavel, she said, if she felt she could have a place to herself in Winnipeg, it might be easier to persuade her to come back. He said he had already put his parents on a list of subsidized apartments in the greater Winnipeg area. There was a housing help center he could appeal to. He could guarantee their rent. The problem, he explained, was that filling out more paperwork wouldn't do the job. They had to show up physically at various offices. Or at least Alona did. But Shura found herself unable to talk about this with Alona, their common ground now being, quite literally, the ground. Shura shared her own difficulties with her dry, rock-filled soil, the challenges of untangling perennial tubers. Planting is not so bad, Iona said. There's hope in it, at least. It's the weeding I can't bear. It's endless. She presented her pale arms to the camera so Shura could see the map of red scratches from thickets she tried to rip out. Her knees were rubbed raw, she said. Shura suggested a hot bath to soak them. I knew her mistake immediately. What in? I can't fill it with more than five centimeters of warm water or he says I'm wasting heating oil. But suddenly, Alona looked embarrassed by her complaint. I've lived through worse. Well, of course you have, but you don't have to anymore, right? You have options this time. Options? Stock shelves? Good health care? It's nothing to laugh at at our age. You need to be taking walks, not digging a spade in the ground eight hours a day. Sounds like you and Pavel have been talking about more than just my health. But Shura was tired of being coy. Look, he's found you an apartment. In your kind of situation, you'll go right to the top of the line. She didn't know how true this was, but hoped it was true enough. Alona swung her head in an, I don't know, gesture. It wasn't enough for her to have the facts. She had to be seduced. Change is hard only at first, but then it's just life, Shura said. Look at me. I've done it three times already. You think I haven't lived through enough changes? Alona's face was amused and cool, and Shura saw her own error. Of course, she'd witnessed bigger upheavals just staying put. Look, even if Oleg wanted to leave Winnipeg, that doesn't mean you have to. Oleg? Pavel said they were quarreling. Yes, and they would have gone on quarreling for eternity if I hadn't said we were going home. Shura felt something like a tremor in her breastbone. You wanted to go back? I just wanted peace, Shura. 
Pavel invites friends over he knows will make Oleg upset. What can we do? We're there at his goodwill, so he reminds us. The irony of this struck Shura like a blow to the temple. Her blood pressure was doing funny things again. How silly of her to think that Alona was being kept in Ukraine against her will, that she'd lived too long on the milk of others' admiration to know what she really desired. That, like her country, all she needed was an opportunity to decide her own fate. Leave or stay, Shura said. You'll have to adapt either way. It's never going back to how it was, you know. The country won't let itself be occupied. Alona almost but not quite laughed. It already is, she said. Did Shura think it was free? That it wasn't already occupied by an army of government consultants? By ones like Hunter Biden sitting on every board? It wasn't that Shura was shocked by this parroting of war and propaganda. Shura had no wish anymore to argue about the particulars. What she had failed to see was that in Alona's view, the choice was always between two compromises. The idea of an unadulterated liberty was another sham Shura had fallen for. Had Alona always felt this way? Or had it come from a lifetime of making her bargains and sticking with them? Before they hung up, she said, You'll forgive me if I don't want to end my days in a waiting room, holding out for Canada's promises. Shura's aversion to that term, waiting room, still rises in her throat five days later while she sits in her oncologist's waiting room, expecting to be called in for her marker test. The words make her think of the turd's latest speech, accusing defectors who have left Russia of selling out their mothers for a chance to sit in the waiting rooms of the West. When the tests come back normal, she takes a long, sustaining breath, then tries to Skype Alona. No answer. She tries the following day. Maybe they have lost their jiggered internet. Maybe they have gone back to Kiev. She's too embarrassed to call Pavel, not that she'd ever tell him that it was his mother's decision to leave Winnipeg or admit what her last words to Alona had been. And yet, who could have imagined you, Alona Karolenko, she'd said, living out your days as a farmer's wife. In her parting shot, she'd gone after the one thing she'd known would make Alona turn away, her vanity. For weeks, she continues to hope that her friend might be the one to call her, for once. That Alona should feel so out of place outside her country, or in it, strikes Shura as a failure of imagination, much worse than her own failures of discretion. In her garden, on her knees, Shura breaks up the soil, mixing in the compost, removing the winter mulch. Afterward, she washes her hands in the kitchen, where the birds can be heard tweeting from a dogwood in bloom over her deck. The season, as it should be, has arrived at last. That was Sana Krasikov reading her story, The Muddle. She's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2005. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Andre Alexis reads Waiting for Death in a Hotel by Italo Calvino, translated from the Italian by Martin McLaughlin. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. 
Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.